episode seven. Yes, that is a number, and it's the number that we're on. This week, we are going to talk about the apartheid. Yes. Remarkably depressing to look up. Yes, it was a bad, bad time. Yep, really bad. And potentially still is, so... Anyways, thanks for listening, uh, for coming back, downloading, liking, reviewing, subscribing, all that good stuff. We really appreciate it. And uh, to the person who gave us four out of five stars, hater. you're a hater. Yep. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. If it's not five out of five, I don't want to hear it. Or at least let us know why. Like what? Okay, yeah, that's what, more what fair. Was, what was the, the <laughs> thing that had us deducted? A yeah, star. Four out of five. Yeah. Hater. That was probably our, uh, we have some downloads not in Canada, which mm-hmm. is shocking. Maybe that was one of the uh, the American downloads we have because I shit talk America so much. Probably. Yeah. That would make sense. Should I stop shit talking America? I mean, don't go I'll out of your way it. too. But like, if, if, if warranted, probably still good <laughs> to do it. I had a question come in about, uh, we are from Canada. Yes. Currently, we live in Canada. Um, and I had a question come in about uh, last week's episode on nuclear meltdowns and what what is, like, Canada's part in nuclear energy. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think we both knew that Saskatchewan is, like, a pretty big exporter of uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that we export a ton of uranium from Saskatchewan. Oh. Uh, we are the second largest producer of uranium and by we i mean i have absolutely no part in that i just live in canada and canada is the second largest producer of uranium uh we're the fourth largest exporter of it uh the the world leader of producing and exporting uranium is kazakhstan we have Hmm. like i think uh that and potassium (laughs) yeah uh we are the we export 13 percent of the world's uranium and they do 43 percent oh wow it's not close no we are not a close second no uh there's also uh we have several nuclear power plants in ontario and one in new brunswick there's also mine uranium mines uh refineries and fabrications in saskatchewan and ontario okay apparently we came up with this can do it's an acronym c-a-n-d-u can do which is like the most canadian thing that we would call it that (laughs) The can-do attitude. Anyways, they're reactors that Canadians came up with. They have been sold to several countries that use nuclear energy. Um, and why? what makes them special is that apparently they use waste from other reactors to fuel themselves. So they're like recycling nuclear waste oh, to like burn again. Oh, well, that seems like a good idea. I know. it's. I mean, if you have a can-do attitude, you I can suppose, do anything yeah. you want. So anyways, that's fun. Yes. Yeah. And something I something I learned. Yeah. So we're recording this on May 4th. May the 4th be with you if you're into that. Star Wars Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it will come out tomorrow, which is Wednesday, May 5th. Uh, May 5th uh, in Canada is Red Dress Day. So if you download this episode and listen to it bright and early, then you are about to listen to it, go about your life, and you may see some red dresses hanging by roads near churches uh, on people in groups of 10 or less because of COVID. Um, and that is because Red Dress Day is the National Day of Awareness for Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. Or maybe you've seen the acronym of MMIWG. This also includes trans women and two-spirit people. That should go without saying. 
Uh, in Canada alone, it is projected that every two months, about five Indigenous women or girls will go missing. And it seems that very little is ever really done to prevent this from happening by officials. <laughs> if we had put two and two together, we would have done today's episode about uh, MMIWG, but unfortunately we didn't realize that this episode would come out on May 5th until a couple of days ago, uh, and it's not really something we wanted to rush the research on. It's just too important. So uh, yeah, this episode will be about apartheid instead. <laughs> um, what we would like to do is a land acknowledgement, and we will do this in all of the We Had No Idea episodes from now on. So anyone listening worldwide can know where this podcast is recorded and produced and how lucky we are to live on this land. We come to you from Mokinsis and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutina, the Iahe Nakona Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. And quickly before we get into uh, any further into today's episode, I do want to say that the sources for the information that you are hearing provided by History.com, the BBC, South African History Online, the University of Stanford, and the United States Department of State Archives. And some of the stuff I just said from CBC and the Toronto Public Library. Okay. So without any further ado, let's get into the uh, the meat of today's episode, the apartheid. Apartheid is literally translated to apartness, was legislation that upheld segregationist policies against non-white citizens of South Africa. After the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. Under apartheid, non-white South Africans, which was a majority of the population... By a lot. <laughs> yeah. ...were forced to live in separate areas from white people and use separate public facilities. Contact between people of different colors was not allowed. Racial segregation and white supremacy had become central aspects of South African policy long before apartheid began, whether it was the Boers, Afrikaners, which are mostly Dutch, German, and French descendant settlers, or British ones, South Africa was ruled by outsiders that simply had better weaponry since the 1600s. The controversial 1913 Natives Land Act marked the beginning of territorial segregation by forcing black Africans to live in reserves and making it illegal for them to work as sharecroppers, which means that they could couldn't farm and use product to pay rent and board. This act set about 7% of land aside for black Africans who were 80% of the population. Opponents of the land act formed the South African National Native Congress, which would later become the African National Congress or the ANC in 1923. It is into this world that Nelson Mandela is born in 1918, into a royal family of the Tembu tribe in the South African village of Mavizo, where his father served as chief. After the death of his father in 1927, Mandela, who was just nine years old and known by his birth name of Roli Halala, was adopted by a high-ranking Tembu regent who began grooming Mandela for tribal leadership. The first in his family to receive a formal education, he completed his primary studies at a local missionary school. 
There, a teacher dubbed him Nelson as part of the common practice of giving African students English names. In 1939, Mandela went to the University of Fort Hare, the only Western-style higher learning institute for black South Africans at the time. He studied law, where he became involved in the movement against racial discrimination and forged key relationships with black and white activists. In 1944, Mandela joined the ANC and worked with fellow party members, including Oliver Tambo, to establish its youth league, the ANCYL. The Great Depression and World War II brought increasing economic woes to South Africa and convinced the government to strengthen its policies of racial segregation. In 1948, the Afrikaner National Party won the general election under the slogan Apartheid. On paper, it appeared to call for equal development of freedom and cultural expression, but the way it was implemented made this impossible. Their goal was not only to separate South Africa's white minority from its non-white majority, but also to separate non-whites from each other and to divide black South Africans along tribal lines in order to decrease their political power. In 1949, the ANC adopted the ANCYL's plan to achieve full citizenship for all South Africans through boycotts, strikes, civil disobedience, and other nonviolent methods. Mandela helped lead the ANC's 1952 campaign for the defiance of unjust laws, traveling across the country to organize protests against discriminatory policies. Also in 1952, Mandela and Tambo opened South Africa's first black law firm, which offered free or low-cost legal counsel to those affected by apartheid legislation. By 1950, the government had banned marriages between white people and people of other races and prohibited sexual relations between black and white South Africans. The Population Registration Act of 1950 provided the basic framework for apartheid by classing South Africans by race, including Bantu, the black Africans, colored, mixed race, and white, fairly self-explanatory. A fourth category, Asian, meaning Indian and Pakistani, was later added. In some cases, legislation split families apart. Parents could be classified as white, while their children were classified as colored. Communism was also banned. Past laws came into effect around this time, which required non-white people to carry documents authorizing their presence in restricted areas. In order to limit contact between the races, the government established separate public facilities for white people and non-white people, limited the activity of non-white labor unions, and denied non-white participation in national government. So with all of this going on, the ANC, together with the South Indian National Congress, organized a mass meeting in 1952, during which attendees burned their passbooks. A group calling itself the Congress of the People adopted a freedom charter in 1955, asserting that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black or white. The government broke up that meeting and arrested 150 people, charging them with high treason, again for saying that black people and white people should be able to live in the same country. Honestly. <sighs> In late 1956, Mandela and 155 other activists were arrested and went on trial for treason. All of the defendants were acquitted in 1961. Hendrik Verwoerd, uh, who was a white dude from the Netherlands, who became prime minister in 1958 of the far-right Nationalist Party after he was their lead political strategist and propagandist, not propaganda, hell of a drug, 
uh, would refine apartheid policy further into a system he referred to as separate development. The promotion of Bantu Self-Government Act in 1959 created 10 Bantu homelands known as Bantustans. Separating black South Africans from each other enabled the government to claim that there was no black majority and reduce the possibility that black people would unify into one nationalist organization. It, it, sorry to interrupt. That, that is literally divide and conquer. Like it, it's, yes. it, it is crazy how just horrifyingly evil that seems. And this is like 1960, right? So yes. 1960-ish. So we can assume that... Like the people don't like people don't have iPhones. People don't have the internet in right. these days. So you can't just oh this is happening in my area and like text your mom or text your friends. Yeah, you can't Google the demographics of South Africa to see what's no. actually going on. So yeah, it's yeah you're right. It's literally divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Every black South African was designated as a citizen as one of the Bantustans a system that supposedly gave them full political rights, but effectively removed them from the nation's political body. Uh, as a sidebar, this deeply racist Hendrik Verward, swear word guy, uh, he was assassinated in 1966. Back in 1960, at the black township of Sharpsville, the police opened fire on a group of unarmed black people associated with the Pan-African Congress, or PAC, an offshoot of the ANC. The group had arrived at the police station without passes, inviting arrest as an act of resistance. At least 67 of them were killed and more than 180 were wounded. Sharpsville convinced many anti-apartheid leaders that they could not achieve their objectives by peaceful means and both the PAC and ANC established military wings. With all of this, panic, anger, and riots sweep the country in the aftermath of the massacre the united nations led the call for sanctions against the south african government fearful of losing friends in africa as decolonization transformed the continent powerful members of the security council including great britain france and the united states succeeded in watering down the proposals. The apartheid government banned ANC and PAC, which forced them to go underground and wear disguises to evade detection. Mandela and other people in these congresses decided that the time had come for a more radical approach than passive resistance. This is another case where it feels like broader politics are at play, and instead of, hey, a bunch of people showed up peacefully to protest and over 200 of them were either killed or wounded, <laughs> we should do something about it. Political leaders in Great Britain, France, and the United States seem a little not high on that idea and water down sanctions. And it, yeah. it's, it is stuff like that that at the time you look at it from a – it feels like it's something that is politically motivated instead of humanely motivated. Human and life? Yes. Decency? And you, you see a lot of that stuff where you kind of hope you're just too far in the forest to see the trees and you're not genuinely evil like this would seem, but – God, it seems bad. Totally. It's like, I mean, this, what I'm about to say is speculation. I did not read this anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Great Britain, France, United States are like, we're making money off South Africa. And if we change things, we might not be. So right. let's not change them. 
In one of the most devastating aspects of the apartheid, the government forcibly removed black South Africans from rural areas designated as white to the homelands and sold their land at low prices to white farmers. From 1961 to 1994, more than 3.5 million people were forcibly removed from their homes and deposited in the Bantu Stins. In 1961, Nelson Mandela co-founded and became the first leader of Umkanto Wesezwe, which translates to Spear of the Nation. A year later, Mandela traveled abroad illegally to attend a conference of African nationalist leaders in Ethiopia, visit the exiled Oliver Tambo in London, and undergo guerrilla training in Algeria. In August, shortly after his return to South Africa, he was arrested and subsequently sentenced to five years in prison for leaving the country and inciting a 1961 workers' strike. The following July, police raided an ANC hideout in Ravonia, a suburb on the outskirts of Johannesburg, and arrested leaders who had gathered to debate the merits of a guerrilla insurgency. Evidence was found implicating Mandela and other activists who were brought to stand for sabotage, treason, and violent conspiracy. Mandela and seven other defendants narrowly escaped being hung and were instead sentenced to life imprisonment during the so-called Ravonia trial, which lasted eight months and attracted substantial international attention. In a stirring opening statement that sealed his iconic status around the world, Mandela admitted to some of the charges against him while defending the ANC's actions and denouncing the injustices of apartheid. He ended by saying, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. To which whoever was in charge of the Ravonia trial said, Fuck off. And Mandela spent the first 18 of his 27 years in jail at the brutal Robben Island Prison, a former leper colony off the coast of Cape Town, where he was confined to a small cell without a bed or plumbing. As a black political prisoner, he received less rations and fewer privileges than other inmates. He was only allowed to see his wife every six months. Mandela and his fellow prisoners were routinely subjected to inhumane punishments for the slightest of offenses. Among other atrocities, there were reports of guards burying inmates in the ground up to their necks and then urinating on them. Like, fuck, dude. Nobody deserves that. No. These restrictions and conditions notwithstanding, while in confinement Mandela earned a Bachelor of Law degree from the University of London, he also smuggled out political statements and a draft of his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, published five years after his release. The uh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> he gets released from jail. Mm -hmm. Is that a spoiler alert? I don't think. Well, I mean, it depends, but all right, all right. yeah, no, you're, you're, you're probably fine. But just think about that for a second. He is going through, he doesn't have a bed. He doesn't have anywhere to go to the bathroom. Yeah. He is being basically tortured yeah. for 18 years. And during this time, he gets a law degree and writes a book. Yeah. Like, holy crap. But while he is in there, it does seem like things start to turn a little bit. As the United Nations General Assembly denounced apartheid in 1973. 
1976, when thousands of black children in Soweto, a black township outside of Johannesburg, demonstrated against the Afrikaans' language requirement for black African students, the police opened fire with tear gas and bullets. The protests and government crackdowns that followed, combined with national economic recession, drew more international attention to South Africa and shattered all illusions that apartheid had brought peace and prosperity to their nation. And we found a chart. Uh, this is courtesy the University of Stanford. They posted just how different things were for black people and white people in South Africa mm -hmm. at this time. We figured it out last night. White people accounted for about, what was it, 19%? Yeah, 19, of, one fifth of the population. Yeah, of the population there and had 87% of the land allocation, 75% of the national income. They also had, uh, for every 400 white South Africans, there was a doctor, and for every four, 44,000 black South Africans, there was a doctor. And the just absolutely heartbreaking aspect of this, white people saw an infant mortality rate of 2.7%. For black people, that was 20% in urban areas and 40% in rural areas. Teacher to pupil ratio, one for every 22, one teacher for every 22 pupils for white people, one teacher for every 60 black mm -hmm. pupils. Just absolutely disgusting. And then those are also like, like how we said Nelson Mandela went to like a missionary school. Like it, it's, it's not even the same like level of education even. No, Ugh. no, it can't be like just all of it. Just absolutely disgusting what was going on. By the late 1970s, grassroots movements in Europe and the United States succeeded in pressuring their governments into imposing economic and cultural sanctions. In 1980, Oliver Tambo introduced a free Nelson Mandela campaign that made the jail leader a household name and fueled the growing international outcry against South Africa's racist regime. A letter was smuggled out of the prison and published. It was written by Mandela, who said, Unite, mobilize, fight on. Between the anvil of united mass action and the hammer of the armed struggle, we shall crush apartheid. I can't imagine what he's thinking as he is, and, and who knows how much information he is getting about what mm -hmm. all is going on on the outside as things are starting to very much turn around. Mm -hmm. um, after the U.S. Congress passed the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act in 1986, many large multinational companies withdrew from South Africa, and by the late 1980s, the South African economy was struggling with the effects of the internal and external boycotts, as well as the burden of its military commitment in occupying Namibia. The United Nations Security Council voted to impose a mandatory embargo on the sale of arms to South Africa. In 1985, the United Kingdom and the United States imposed some economic sanctions on the country as well. Under pressure from the international community, the National Party government sought to institute some reforms, including abolition of the past laws and the ban on interracial sex and marriage. The reforms fell short of any real sub substantial change, however, and by 1989, the president was pressured to step aside in favor of F.W. de Klerk. De Klerk's government repealed most of the legislation that formed the legal basis for apartheid. 
DeClerc freed Nelson Mandela on February 11th of 1990, a new constitution which enfranchised black South Africans and other racial groups took effect in 1994, and elections that year led to a coalition government with a non-white majority, marking the official end of the apartheid system. President de Klerk and activist Nelson Mandela would win the 1994 Nobel Peace Prize for their work creating that new constitution for South Africa. And just to let you know how ready people were for this election, when it happened on uh, or in April of 1994, more than 22 million South Africans mm-hmm. turned out to cast ballots in the country's first multiracial parliamentary election in history. An overwhelming majority chose the ANC to lead the country, and on May 10th, Mandela was sworn in as the first black president of South Africa, with de Klerk serving as his first deputy. With that, remaining sanctions were lifted, and South Africa took their seat in the UN General Assembly after a 20-year absence. After retiring from politics in 1999, Mandela remained a devoted champion for peace and social justice in his own nation and around the world until his death in 2013 at the age of 95 and in looking up uh the place where he was from Mavizo, i learned that there is now the mandela school of science and technology Mavizo's first secondary school oh amazing yeah that's awesome that's nice but um just to quickly squash that niceness um i wanted uh to just read a little bit from This New York Times article that was published in 2017. So while apartheid ended, it didn't really. Uh, So the article goes, The end of apartheid was supposed to be a beginning. Judith Sicade envisioned escaping the townships where the government had forced black people to live. She aimed to find work in Cape Town, trading her shack for a home with modern conveniences. More than two decades later, Miss Sicade, now 69, lives on the garbage-strewn dirt of Crossroads Township, where thousands of black families have used splintered boards and metal sheets to construct airless hovels for lack of anywhere else to live. I've gone from a shack to a shack, Miss Sicade says. I'm fighting for everything I have. You still are living in apartheid. In the history of civil rights, South Africa lays claim to a momentous achievement, the demolition of apartheid and the construction of a democracy. But for black South Africans who account for three-fourths of this nation, of roughly 55 million people, political liberation has yet to translate into broad material gains. Apartheid has essentially persisted in economic form. Well, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it just, it shows how much work needs to be done when this kind of stuff happens. Yeah. It's, and like, it's just, it took 50 years and it took all of that work to just have apartheid taken down. And, and that's just like the, basically just the word apartheid taken away. Mm-hmm. Now you have to, like, it, it takes generations to just yeah. switch over from that. And, and there's just, it has to be just ingrained in so many people. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't just go, okay, so uh, everything is, is back to normal now. We're, we're all good? Good? Cool. Awesome. All right. Yeah. I'll just be over there if you need anything. <laughs> yeah, it, we've displaced so many people. And, and then, yeah. you know, we end the laws and and then you're just supposed to, like, go home. Right. Like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's it, it really does show with all the work that is put in to take down the system, it requires that much more work to build up a new prosperous one. Yeah. It just feels like it's so easy to take away 
and it's very difficult to get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. So on that <laughs> note, that's our show. So yeah, that is our show. We uh, we hope you learned something. Apartheid is something that I I personally did not know really anything about no this was this was the exact type of a thing that we started the show for where it's like you you said we're doing the apartheid it's like all right i've heard of that if you would have asked me before this week to name like three things about it i probably would have fallen short of the last two like i i I would have had okay well nelson mandela was very much involved yeah and aside from that i didn't have a a whole lot of a, a well i was gonna say recollection i was Four when it all came to an end yeah. <laughs> but um I, I didn't really have a real grasp on this one so hopefully we provided a little bit of that for you as we, we ran down uh what is an absolute black eye in history and one that we, we are seeing some almost 30 years later it is very difficult to recover from yes um so i didn't tell you this but i i looked at our little list here of oh and thank you to the three people who suggested apartheid Yes. I hope that we did it justice for you and and really just did it justice. Hard stop. Right. Um, so on our little list here of topics that I guess it, we just called it podcast ideas. <laughs> you asked me to pick one off of here. Yep. For next week. And I didn't tell you what it was. No, you did not. That's because it is a history event that you know lots about, but I know very little about. Okay. And that is the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. Yes. Okay. There are a couple of very good documentaries on this. And this is one where you're very much going to have to rein me in on it. Because this okay. is this is a subject I can just go on. I'm going to have to edit the notes down a lot for this next one. Yes. Yes. You, you <laughs> absolutely 100% are. I, I feel like this is one where I could do it tomorrow if we wanted to. Oh my gosh. But I look forward to diving into this one a little bit more. And seeing what you think of it as, as we go along. Because this is a an event in North American history that I think kind of gets glossed over. Because th- there have been other such types of events that have happened in bigger cities that had a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Um, not to take anything away from the impact of this one. But there are so many layers to this that it, it is absolutely horrifying mm-hmm. and yeah it, it's it, it does feel like something in history that kind of just gets glossed over so looking forward to diving into it next week okay great i can't wait to uh listen to you on our <laughs> podcast i won't speak at all maybe i'll say hi in the intro right and then you can tell the fine folks at home about the oklahoma city bombing all right okay great well if you have um suggestions comments you want to say hi uh we have an instagram now for this uh podcast it's we had no idea podcast on instagram uh you can also send us emails we had no idea podcast at gmail.com and we really appreciate you that's it oh oh <laughs> i mean we also appreciate you rating reviewing subscribing giving us five stars and saying nice things about us Yes. So please do all of those things. And again, email us. We had no idea podcast at gmail.com. The Instagram is we had no idea podcast. And Ooh. we, well, certainly I, but probably we will talk to you guys next week. Bye.